0: You are listening to Boot News with Ian Griffin, a podcast all about kombucha. I'm on the phone today with Andrew Mills. He's the founder of Nunk Living Junk Kombucha, which is based in Buckingham, England, uh, around 60 miles away, I guess, to the northwest of London. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Ian. Uh, thanks for having
1: us. It's, um, it's nice to talk to you. To coin an old phrase, I'm, I'm a long-time listener.
0: Oh, good! It's good to know. I mean, we met during this wonderful kombucha summit that was hosted by the the guys in Berlin. That was held virtually, and um, that's where you did a great tour of your Zoom tour of your um, of your facilities there. But I should start by saying, I I mean, it's kind of I'm assuming most people who listen to Booch News know that Jun, which is what you exclusively produce, is is made from honey and green tea only. And I have to ask you: I mean, kombucha itself is somewhat still a new beverage for most of the you know the drinking public, and Jun is a subset of that, so it's a kind of a rare version of, of kombucha. How do you find, in terms of? the marketing of your product and the awareness people have, how do you find it's being received?
1: Uh, when people taste it, obviously, they, they, they love it. Um, it's not as uh, acidic as um, kombucha, so it's a, it's a much gentler taste. But, um, yeah, the, the brand, well, the recognition of a new uh, type of drink is always difficult, um, which is why we call it Jun Kombucha because more, more people, while still few, know kombucha compared to Jun. Um, and you know it, it's that it, that opens doors, but it's still difficult. But uh, likewise, just finding out how to how to brew jun is uh, not easy because it is very different. Well, there are numerous differences to kombucha, you know, temperature, fermentation time, just to name a couple. So actually trying to learn how to brew Jun, and particularly in a commercial way, uh, you know, is, is really difficult because there's, you know, there's not much information out there for Kabuka, but there's much, much less for a, uh, for Jun.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, and I know that um, you did highlight that a few times in this virtual tour you gave us of your facility. I mean, in the U.S., you probably know there's a brand called Wild Tonic that's pretty well stocked. And it's, you know, it, it's very much. I think they've even got a, a bee embossed on their glass, their blue glass bottles. But uh, I think, yeah, when you call it Jun kombucha, um, you're, you're doing double education there, both for the people who are familiar with kombucha to try it. And I did see that you won. So you talked about how it's got a unique taste. Um, I was curious to know about the uh, Great Taste Award that you won. Was it this September? Um, yeah
1: that was when it was announced so um we uh so the great taste award is um it's a, a uk thing where uh for artisan producers small small producers mostly um mm-hmm. everything from you know smoked salmon through to uh, beers kombucha etc um and basically you submit your entry it goes into uh, out to judges etc and they award it you know one two or three stars so kind of along the sort of michelin star kind of basis and um Mm -hmm. and this year we were uh we just thought we'd we'd do it anyway so we submitted one of our flavors our hops monster flavor and um you know (laughs) didn't hear anything back and it all when when it was all when we entered it it was like. just before, when we decided we were going to enter, it was just before the whole um, first lockdown in the UK. And then they gave you like a month's notice to submit your entry, and then that all got cancelled or postponed because of the lockdown. And and then we got this email in, so it was probably back in April, and we got this email in, I think it was June or July, saying, right, you've got one week to submit your entry. And uh, it was kind of like, ah, uh, we'd like to have more time to be able to get the, you know, make sure it was the, the best possible, etc., so we just submitted what we had. And, uh, yeah, in September, I think, we, we got an email from them saying, you know, congratulations, you've, you've been awarded the star. So we're quite pleased with that. And uh, and I think, you know, next year when we will enter, of course, again, I think we'll do better. We'll enter all the flavors as well. But I think we'll have more time to prepare. And hopefully we won't have lockdown to contend with.
0: Right, right. Um, well, let's, let's go back to the beginning then um, because you're, you're – um, your op- operation there is only a couple of years old. How did you come up with the idea, and, and how did you launch it uh, as a commercial brand?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're actually commercially we've only been going since um, well since March or late February. Um, we I've been brewing John for a few years now, um, and we decided to st- we only decided to actually go commercial, decide to start Nunkers for you know sort of several reasons and. All of them seem to happen at the same time, or within a short space of of time of each other. And uh, it's actually my wife and I have set the business up. And um, uh, and I think at the time we were sort of annoyed with going to the pub. And you know, in the UK, your choice of non-alcoholic drinks is you know almost non-existent. It's like you know uh, soft drinks or um, fruit juices. Uh, And you know if you want to you know go out with your go out with your mates and have a drink. Um, it's kind of like, you know, you look different if you're not drinking a beer sort of thing. So we were wanting to find an, an adult alternative to alcohol and we are struggling. Um, and I, I should stress, I'm not a, I, I, I do drink alcohol. It's you know, I don't want to drink alcohol every time I go out. I want to have something different. And, um, and at the same time, we're hobbyist beekeepers. So we have our own bees. Uh, I've got three hives out the back, probably about 80 meters from where we ferment. And you know, every year we're sort of giving away honey to friends and family, but, you know, we wanted to do something with it and, you know, we always had leftover honey and it was just like, well let's yeah, we should be able to do something with it. So I started looking into healthy drinks that use honey and, you know, I experimented with mead, but it's too sweet and also it's alcoholic. Um, and then I read this article on June, it was quite an obscure article. I think it was um uh, either India or somewhere. I can't remember where the article um came from. But I was reading about Jun and I was, I was quite I was thinking that's great. So I managed my hands on a um some Scoby a Scoby and I started brewing it and was just sort of hooked on it. And so I didn't actually know about kombucha until after I started brewing Jun. And um and then uh you know and also I think from a personal perspective, um my my background has been in uh the businesses, um mostly in technology. Um some did well, some did bad. But I just got to the point where I was sort of tired of, um, you know, everything being sort of centred around money. So, you uh, know, I wanted to kind of show, I've got two boys and wanted to show them there was a different way to do business as well. So we thought, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did something with Jun? So so we started Nunk and um, uh, at the time, this was just before, the, again, the first lockdown, uh, and we had uh, a friend of ours who sells coffee at um, festivals, et cetera. He, um, he signed us up to sell, you know, to, so he could sell our Jun at these festivals. So we were like, well, it's great. We've got all our production for the next, you know, nine months sorted for these festivals. So we won't worry about doing retail sales or any of that sort of thing, website even. And uh, along came the lockdown. Oh, and I, I left out my last business. Um, so we we're going to do a part time. Last business, uh, the investor pulled out about a week before lockdown, so I was sort of dealing with that. Uh, lockdown happened, and then all of a sudden all the festivals were cancelled, so all these contracts we had were cancelled and it was kind of like, oh. So um, so I've gone full-time with Nunk now and we've had to obviously pivot the business more towards the consumer. So we've, we had to work on the website, work, out, work on going out to two, uh, farm shops, cafes, pubs and so forth, um, online retailers. And we're just start, starting to get traction that way in, in moving it. My wife is still working full-time, but she works part-time at Nunc as well, so it's long hours for us. Um, uh, she of does the the social media, et cetera. Um, yeah, so it's been, you know, it's been, <laughs> the past six months have been sort of a bit of a roller coaster in, uh, you know, getting things going.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, there's a couple of things, obviously in a way, you chose the worst possible month to open uh, in terms of not having that uh, route to selling uh, at the festivals. Um, I was also, it's surprising to hear that, you know, you came to Jun without any knowledge of kombucha. I mean, I'm a home brewer, and I've I've experimented. I've done one or two batches of Jun where I I let my SCOBY gradually transfer from sugar to honey and experimented that way. But um, in your case, I, you know, this tour you did, the, the Zoom tour, which I I don't think has been archived. I don't know if the uh, Kombucha Summit did a recording of it, but uh, whether that's going to become available. But it, it was quite surprising to me that uh, it's in an old building, I think, and your property, and it didn't seem to be that large. I mean, I, it, it, was no. it around the, maybe the size of an average American two-car garage or two-car garage? Yeah.
1: About the space I would, you yeah, I would say so. And, um, and that's probably one of the best things we did. So you're absolutely right. Starting up, in hindsight, starting then, you know, wasn't the best move. And, uh, you know, I guess if we had known there was a lockdown around the corner, it might have been a different story. But um, uh, one of the best things we did actually was because we were debating whether, you know, well, let's go into commercial premises or not sort of thing. And, um, and I was, you know, cause I'm, you know didn't, want, didn't want to go out for investors and all that sort of stuff. It was like, no, we're going to do this ourselves. Um, it was like, well, we've got this uh, old barn on, our, on our, um, in our front yard, basically, that's 150 years old. And I said, well, we're just going to convert it into parts of it into the brewery because obviously parts of it still have to store things like push bikes and so forth. So um, I had an office already built in here that was completely insulated, so that got turned over into sort of a fermentation room. Uh, and then um, another part of the, the barn I converted into a clean room so that's where we do like the canning, the labeling, et cetera, because uh, being an old barn, it, you know, there's nothing stopping, you know, uh, the outside air from circulating, circulating around. So wild yeast was always a, sort of a concern for us. So, um, you know, but you don't know this to start with, and you kind of add to it as you go along. But, yeah, no, we've made the most of this space, and I think what we can fit in here at the moment, we can brew about, uh, I think, 800 liters a month. I mean, it is Jun, so it ferments a lot quicker than kombucha but we've got space to probably double double that production so we can get ourselves into a position where we don't need to go into a commercial premises until we're sort of well-established.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you also mentioned the investments... Of- Obviously, you had the place, you had the property about the size of a two-car garage Mm -hmm. in America, but you said you'd invested around 12,000 pounds, which is around 16,000 U.S. dollars, and that was all it took, really, and was significant, but not hundreds of thousands to set up a production to make that many liters. Um, Did you source all that uh, equipment new or find used equipment? How was it able to be done relatively cheaply? Yeah, well,
1: so um, and also that twelve. I mean, if you, if I was in America, for example, that would I would be much less than twelve thousand because uh, despite Europe having the same sort of population of America, they just don't really have the the manufacturing that America has. So, um, so for example, our fermentation tank is SS Brute, um, which obviously costs more when a, you know paying we're paying more in pounds. Like I don't know, let's say it costs a thousand US dollars, we're paying maybe twelve hundred pounds so it's um a lot more expensive, so you certainly in America you do it a lot cheaper um but we 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 think the, the keg fridge we have is um second hand um some of the test equipment is second hand, but most of it is bought new certainly all the all the tanks and uh, we use are all new um and it's just a case of um working out your space, what space you have, and then you know and also the, the other thing which is i think quite key when i bought um i made sure i can use it as we scale scale so um apart from the glass jars i started with um you know, we're we basically since then i think because we just realized glass jars whilst fantastic is a lot of work a lot of cleaning etc and for myself working full time it's just too much to, it's really too much to do if you want to scale the business so switching to stainless steel fermentation tanks etc was um uh, was a godsend and um and you know i'm quite keen to um share that 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 knowledge with people because um certainly my uh on on my journey i've been helped enormously by people in the kombucha industry and um in fact it was one of it was one of your um podcasts we did with um adam from jar kombucha who you know absolute great guy he's sort of like the the godfather of kombucha in the uk you know that's, that's probably not doing justice to him you know he's um you know he he's such a um, he's such a giving guy. He's just really happy to help other people to succeed. And um, you know he's not about he's just very generous with his time. And he's not about you know making money out of out of your lack of knowledge sort of thing. So he's been enormous help to us. You know answering some of the most mundane ridiculous questions for us, which has been great. And uh, but it's his attitude of this whole sort of open source of knowledge that. I kind of embrace and think it's a great idea. So, you know, when it came to the opportunity to show people on this uh, on the summit around our brewery and to show how you can do things cheaply, you don't need commercial premises, et cetera. I was quite keen to, to share that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, Adam Vannie is great and um it's of course also the philosophy you're uh, describing is um, behind, say, you know, Hannah Crumb starting the Kombucha brews International. And as you might know, I'm the editor of the Symbiosis magazine, and the name Symbiosis, symbiotic culture of bacteria, but it also implies the symbiotic or symbiosis that it can exist in this community of people who still brew. I mean, June is the is the the niche within the niche of kombucha. Um, but there's such a huge potential. The market out there, the presentation I gave at the uh, recorded for the kombucha summit pointed out the number of brewers per head in different countries. And uh, yeah, and there's still a lot of room because so many people don't even know about the drink and are looking for alcohol alternatives and healthy, um, healthy beverages. Um, now, one more point about your production that, i was curious to see um you and i can see on your website you exclusively it looks like selling cans versus bottles and you have a little canning operation why did you choose to go with cans because many first early brewers um might switch to cans but they are usually start glass bottles what was the what was the reason for that uh and i
1: can understand why you use glass bottles again hindsight's um wonderful um uh so we went cans um for several we always want to use cans because of the environmental side of things They're so, um they are more envi- environmentally friendly than bottles and one of the things we're quite keen to do is be sustainable and responsible you know we we love you know because we we use our own honey we use be other honey from other beekeepers, etc so you know nature and the environment is very important to us so uh, you know using the best type of packaging from a recycling point of view was important to us. But, um, certainly at the time we decided to do the commercial business, one of the main drivers for us was, um, the fact that we were going to be selling festivals and the festivals don't allow glass bottles. So it had to be in cans. Um, so that was one of the main drivers that made us say, okay, well, we're going to go straight to cans and not worry about bottles. In, in hindsight, um, bottles you know from a startup perspective make a lot of sense because um there's just so much more equipment around for bottling than there is for canning and the equipment that is around for canning certainly in europe is is quite expensive so um you know if i was had my time back again i perhaps might have started with bottles with the view of moving into canning because as i say you know it's you can get very cheap bottling um bottling hand bottling equipment but also there's a lot more second hand bottling equipment around where for canning that's not so much the case so yeah i would um but yeah i don't i don't regret the decision because you know for me canning still is where we want to go anyway from an environmental perspective
0: yeah obviously recyclability and uh, and the ability also what so what it paid off for you now is uh, you can ship cans at a lower weight, uh, cheaper to ship, maybe easier uh, to package. Um, but I was impressed to see that you kind of have a – I'd always seen canning, you know, when you look at the websites for canning, uh, it happens these long, like you see for some of the high volume bottling, it's kind of these you know, very long, uh, fast paced machines that, that fill and seal the cans, whereas yours is more of a bench operation, right? You kind of, I think you could say you could do what, three a minute or something uh, by filling and sealing each one individually and then obviously packaging them and keeping them cold. So yeah, you were able I mean, to come up with a, a sort of a low volume relatively affordable operation there
1: yeah and also uh it doesn't take up much space so um you know where the clean room is it's uh it's a narrow space long bench and we sort of can just walk down the bench you know fill seam the can and then you know give it a bit of a clean off and stack the can so it all kind of works out quite nicely um we definitely couldn't have fit a canning line in here um, but uh, yeah, the the operation we've gone for is is still manual um, between one of us, just myself. I can do about three cans a minute. Uh, if it was two of us, that's probably around five to six cans a minute.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so so it's scalable um, within the the size you're at at the moment. And I wanted to switch gears again in a way because I you did say and you say on the website. Uh, quite a lot about the the source of the raw material is your own bees and you were a beekeeper you had the hives you still use your own hive honey and you say then within about a five mile radius other local honey from bees Um, I mean from what I know about that world uh, beekeeping both in the US and the probably in Europe uh, is is not what it was, say fifty or a hundred years ago. There's been a huge decline in the number of bees because of pesticides. Is that true? And is that something that you're concerned about?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: I mean, um, when, you, when you start to when you when you I still do keep bees. We've got
1: I say, I've got three hives, um, and when we started, and Uncle used our own honey, and we still do use our own honey for um, special editions. Uh, but you know, we 're adding five kilos of honey to a batch, and i you know my my three hives can 't produce all all that, so we have to source it from other other places as well but we still keep to our ethos, which is you know getting it local so the food miles are small or are low, and also getting it from um we, we try to but, so the amazing thing about honey is that if when you i 'm talking about raw honey here, um, I would, would never touch the pasteurized stuff, but raw honey is um if you bought your honey from you know buckinghamshire where we are um or you bought it from say london it would taste completely different even if it was um you know created at the same point in time it's just that the because it all depends upon the flowers that are in bloom the the air um it's just so it's so amazing how different honey can be so one of the things we do in the um, our brewery when people come to visit us is we we get them to try you know this is um, our uh, Beatrix hive we give our hives, all, you know, all our queens our hives have names, so we've got Beatrix and Yasmin and uh, Sheila um, and uh, each, you know, we'll say here's honey from Beatrix at, um, you know, beginning of June and here's honey from Yasmin at beginning of June, so two different hives at the same time of year, now just taste them, what you think, and they taste completely different because the bees, even though it's the same time of year, they're sourcing their the nectar and pollen etc from different locations it 's just amazing how different honey can taste so um so we do um, so for our special dishes, we still use our own honey, um, but we do use um uh, I say honey from within five miles and that 's important to us because we want to still have a similar sort of flavor profile in the honey, so we 're trying to get honey from bees in this area that would still be using the same sort of flowers as our own bees um, it still does taste different, but we 're trying to get that, you know Get that flavour profile a bit closer, but for me, um, well, what, sorry, yeah, I was, just, yeah, go I was
0: just going to comment that what listening to you um, describe this, it's um, it's at the level, it's not beyond the level that you. I mean, I'm always looking at other um, beverage industries and obviously the craft beer industries, really a lot of parallels to the kombucha jun industry. But here, you're almost describing what you read about in kind of wine you know, wine appreciation uh, columns where they talk about which side of the vineyard uh, the grapes were grown. What so consistency in your drink isn't something that you're not producing a, the, the three flavors, the hops, the rose blush, and the juniper have their own flavoring, but the, the base honey also varies throughout the year and from the hive to hive by the sound of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in each, each of our flavours has their own unique tea as well. So we don't use the same uh, tea base or same starter for all of them. So we, we have each drink has its own um, tea flavour behind it. And the tea, we, we choose the tea to complement the honey and then to complement the flavours we want in that particular drink. But what I was going to say about the bees, just to sort of finish off there, because it's something... Um, well, I could talk about for hours, what I'm quite passionate about is that so when you become a beekeeper, you start to appreciate you know how this community of bees work together, and they just it's all about what's the good of the hive and you know promoting the hive and the importance of the hive and you know their survival, etc. and you do think you know sometimes it'd be great if the human race adopted that sort of attitude where they put the you know the uh, you know the community first rather than themselves and um and yeah, I find. Bees are are incredible insects. You know, one of the things that you know. So, for example, um, you have the drone bees, which are the male bees, and you have the worker bees, which are the female bees. And uh, the drone bees don't really do much. It's the females that do all the work. They do all they they do the foraging, collecting the honey. They look after the the, um, the 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 new babies, the babies. Sorry, they look after the babies. They protect the queen. You know, drones just sort of hang around on the off chance they might have sex at some point so they don't really do much so come come well, winter, when winter's looming you know, in autumn the, the um the worker bees are like right we've got limited food to last us through winter so we don't need that many mouths to feed what can we do ah and you actually see the worker bees carrying the drone bees outside of the hive and then sort of tossing them away and you know if a drone bee tried to get back in they'd be killed so they they stay outside and unfortunately they they do die they freeze but um it's just fascinating to see these bees, you know, carrying out these other, these much larger bees, and just giving them, giving them the heat hoe. Um, my wife always enjoys that story for some reason. But um, I was going yeah, to but,
0: say, you're, so in your case, your your uh, your your roles in your marriage don't reflect this. You're you're not the lazy <laughs> drone. That, no, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. But I do. Our our roles in
1: our marriage are very different in the sense that I do the cooking in the house. You know, um, you know, but we have our, you know pink jobs and blue jobs, but they're very, you know, my wife does a lot of the handyman work and you oh. know, I, I do the cooking and stuff. So we are, our roles are blurred. They're not definitely not gender specific as such, but um, she, uh she was keeping bees before me and then her work got too much. So I sort of took over and, um, mm-hmm.
0: you know, I
1: just things But yeah, bees are really, you know, they're under a lot of threat from pesticides, from varroa, uh, just um, like a mite. Um, They're, you know, um, there's a thing called an Asian Asian hornet, which I think you call the murder hornet in America. That's now come out. That's basically can wipe out entire um, colonies, colony collapse disorder. You know, bees are really um, doing it tough at the moment. And for me, one of the, one of the things about Nunk or, or brewing is that um, we're giving you know, we have a the one problem we do have is that because we use honey, then you know, some vegans won't won't drink won't have out won't drink Nunk because you know they don't think honey is vegan but from my perspective it's like if we can source the honey in a sustainable way and we're not being you know we're treating the the bees in a very positive way um, not clipping their wings and all these sort of practices but treating them as naturally as possible then you know actually the more people keeping bees or caring for bees as i prefer to say um you know the better the chance they have a survival you, you know if you just left bees out in the wild the way things are in the world today the, the, it's just, their survival isn't guaranteed so we do need people to care for bees and to you know to have the hives and look after them etc um and you know i'm hoping that by brewing, Jun, and by trying to buy as much honey as possible from hobbyist beekeepers, you know that's going to sort of provide an income stream to people, a bit of an, a bit of a uh, what's the word? A bit of a um a lure or a um a, a reason mm-hmm. for them to to keep bees, and um you know and uh, as I say, it doesn't have to be cruel.
0: No, be cruel. but it, one of the statistics you had on your website though, pointed out that. You know the threat to bees, as you said, 97% of all wildflower meadows have disappeared from Britain just since the Second World War um, in the 1940s. So, how about? I mean, is there enough pollen-producing uh, sources in Buckinghamshire still? Is that is that a risk that they'll start uh, no, the, the source that the bees need to disappear?
1: No, I think there's so much there's so much around, and you know that. Uh, there's just definitely no no shortage of um, plants and flowers for them to to get their honey from or get the nectar and pollen from. Um, and bees are very adaptable. They, you know they they you know they they can they can, they, will, they will survive. They're, they're, they've got that instinct to survive, and they will do what, what it requires to survive. I um, so say you know if it means over winter throwing out some extra mouths, they they will, they will do it. So um, they're very adapt, adaptable in, uh, creatures. You know and yeah, I, and personally, I think the more the more flowers there are, the better. You know, it's uh, it's, it's quite yeah, it's quite sad because obviously farming um, has become a lot more intensive since World War Two. So the meadows that used to be around the edges of the farms, et cetera, now all just converted into farmland. You know, they don't want to have the meadows that those little uh, wild wildflower meadows there anymore because it's taking up space that they could actually be planting. So that's why we're having this right. problem. You know much fewer although, wildlife, as
0: a, lots, et etc. Yes, yeah, so, uh, although as an occasional listen, listener to the archers, I do know that over in Ambridge, that mythical town in the British Midlands, they're apparently trying to do rewilding. So, uh, I don't know how common that is around Britain.
1: but Yeah, no, there's, there's several um, studies. I mean, there's one study that was being done not far from here on a um, farmer where they're trying to put it back as natural as possible. You know, I think it's like well, several hundred acres and they've tried kind to of put it back to as natural as possible and they've actually seen um production levels have gone up. So there's a lot I think yeah. there's a lot more to be discovered in this whole area about you know perhaps the whole industrialization of things hasn't necessarily been a good thing and that you know there are if we go back to some of the old ways of doing things is actually you know much better for the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, this is definitely fascinating, and a, a lot, lots more we could talk about. I know I'd re- <clears throat> refer people to your to your website, which is nuncliving. dot com dot com for those who are listening to the podcast, because you do have a lot of detail there about the the products. And but to finish now, where so hopefully we'll come out of the COVID, the pandemic. Uh, maybe you'll return to be able to go back to the festivals that you weren't able to visit. But what's your, what's your hope for the future of Nunk Living, uh, say, the next year or two? Uh, yeah, I mean, we want
1: to continue. To, we definitely want to continue to grow the business. Um, it's been a, a huge learning curve for us. And um, and for me, and certainly people that have tried Nunk, and obviously I'm biased because, you know, it's, it's our baby kind of thing. But um, it is a, we haven't gone for... And I'm not I'm not saying this to um disparage uh booch boot brewers in the slightest, but um we we we've gone for different type of flavours in the sense that we've gone for a um a hops monster which is kinda of like a lager beery type um replacement, and uh juniper for like those are like G and Ts, cetera. So we've we've gone for an adult flavor profile in our drinks and that really isn't that isn't there at all in pubs and restaurants, et cetera. So we're quite keen to you know, to grow the business from that side of things. Um, but one thing I'd just like to say as well is that you know if your listeners want to, um, you know, much like Adam said, and you know, I can't speak highly, more highly. I can't speak any more highly about Adam than it is. He's a great guy, and always willing to help. He might kill me for saying that, but any questions asking. But also, if anybody is starting out who wants to know about, you know, uh, what you know, equipment or pitfalls or things that aren't worthwhile buying or whatever, then just reach out. I'm happy to help.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for spending time and, and telling us on Booch News about uh, June bees and, and uh, the world that you've built there in Buckinghamshire. It's great to talk um, to you.
1: Yeah, and thanks for your time, Ian. You do a great job, by the way. I do I say, uh, when we started, you were a great source of um, knowledge, which you know, isn't, in, isn't in plentiful supply. So listening to your podcasts are a great way to learn. So you know, Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Booch News. For more about kombucha, please visit BoochNews.com.